Well, good morning, everyone. My name is J.B. Hickson. It is Tuesday, August the 9th, and this is Not By Works Ministries. Thanks for joining us for the podcast today. I'd like to continue our look at Bible prophecy today. You know, last Tuesday we looked at the distinctions between the rapture and the second coming, and I think I'm just going to continue on Tuesdays covering Bible prophecy and various uh, topics, and today I'd like to give a, a, a crash course, if you will, on the book of Revelation. You know, if you were to ask uh, anyone uh, what they know about Bible prophecy or what they know about the end times, inevitably their mind is going to go to the book of Revelation. In fact, if you ask people what book of the Bible tells us about the end times and future Bible prophecy that is yet to be fulfilled, everyone's mind immediately goes to Revelation. And it should, of course, Revelation does tell us the end of the story. But of course, as I've pointed out in my book, What Lies Ahead, a biblical overview of the end times, you cannot really study the end times without studying the beginning. And so a proper study of the end times begins with Genesis and goes all the way through the Bible uh, to the book of Revelation. Uh, Nevertheless, Revelation is a key book in the study of the end times because it sort of shows us how everything ends. It's the culmination to God's plan of the ages. And yet, uh, unfortunately, the book of Revelation has kind of gotten a bad, a bad rap, if you will. A lot of people think it's confusing. They, they believe uh, that uh, nobody really understands it or there's too much disagreement about it. And so uh, people may be aware of the book of Revelation, and it may come to their mind when they're thinking about Bible prophecy, but they've sort of become convinced Uh, wrongly, uh, as I'm going to show you, uh, that the book of Revelation is too complex and mystical and hard to understand. And so, uh, therefore, when certain Bible prophecy teachers present their view, uh, they're inclined to say, well, but then again, what do they know? Other people disagree. Nobody really knows. And so they're sort of comfortable with this ambiguity. But what I'd like to do today in the program is just uh, quickly go through chapter by chapter the book of Revelation and show you that, in fact, It is one of the easiest books in the Bible to outline, to understand, and it's also one of the most important books in that it closes the gap. It answers all of the questions that human history has raised about fairness and justice and equity and all of those things that our souls cry out for uh, that need attention. Well, the book of Revelation answers those unanswered questions. And so I'm going to call today's podcast a, a, I guess, a primer on the book of Revelation or a, a quick overview of the book of Revelation. Uh, For some of you, this may be pretty basic if you've studied Bible prophecy, but my guess is for many of you listening today, uh, you've never really seen the big picture. You've never taken a flyby overview of the book. You may have heard people quote certain verses here or there or misquote them more often than not. Uh, You may have heard people misinterpret certain passages or possibly interpret them correctly too, I hope, but you've never really been able to connect the dots for the entire book. And so that's what we want to do. Uh, on today's uh, program for the remainder of our time together. So to begin with, I want to clarify that the last book of the Bible is called The Revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I hear people mispronounce the last book of the Bible and call it Revelations, plural. I mean, even otherwise well-edited, well-written books, 
by people that are talking about various subjects. Maybe they're not Bible experts or theologians, but they're talking about certain geopolitical events. And for some reason, they'll make a passing reference to the last book of the Bible, and they will call it Revelations. And their editors didn't catch it. But there is no such book as Revelations. The book is called The Revelation. And in fact, it begins with these words, the Revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the first uh, five words of uh, the book of Revelation, in English anyway. By the way, the word revelation is the Greek word apocalypsis, where we get the word apocalypse. And so sometimes you'll hear uh, the last book of the Bible referred to as the apocalypse. Uh, that just means unveiling uh, the, the revelation of God uh, to mankind, the unveiling of God to mankind. Uh, through his son, Jesus Christ. And so it really is the culmination of God's plan of the ages. You can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, where God's word promises that one day the seed of the woman, capital S, uh, referring to Christ, would crush the head of Satan. And then you go all the way through uh, human history, 6,000 years so far, and you find uh, the promises of God reiterated and fulfilled through the first advent of Christ, the birth of the Messiah at uh, in Bethlehem, through the death and resurrection of Christ on the cross at Calvary. And then the book of Revelation gives the story of his uh, return after his ascension that Acts chapter 1 tells us about, the book of Revelation then describes his return. It's not the only place that re describes the return of Christ. Of course, it's mentioned many times in the Old Testament in connection with the coming kingdom. Jesus himself taught on his return extensively in the Olivet Discourse. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago on the Tuesday podcast. But the book of Revelation tells the story of Christ's return, and it is indeed the revelation of Jesus Christ. The author is uh, John the Apostle, who was known as uh, one of the fiery sons of thunder, according to Mark 3.17. And uh, he is also the author of the Gospel, the Gospel of John, and also the author of the three epistles that he wrote just prior to writing uh, the book of Revelation. Now, you'll hear a lot of uh, critics of end times prophecy out there, and by that I mean amillennialists and preterists, people that don't believe in the literal, grammatical, historical understanding of Scripture, that's, which leads you to a uh, literal return of Christ all the way to the earth to establish his kingdom, and also, by the way, to a rapture for the church that will happen at least seven years before the second coming. But those who don't agree with that uh, viewpoint will often try to say the book of Revelation was written uh, in around 70 A.D., or actually just prior to 70 A.D., uh, during the reign of Nero. But uh, both internal and external evidence completely debunks uh, that uh, perspective. It was quite clearly written in around 95-96 A.D., near the end of Domitian's reign, the, the hideous Roman emperor who just was uh, you know, unsurpassed in his persecution of Christians at that time. Even as early as the mid to late 2nd century, uh, Church Father Arrhenius wrote very plainly that uh, John wrote the book of Revelation, quote, at the close of Domitian's reign. So that would make it about 95 uh, AD. So we have this book, the last book of the Bible, written by the Apostle John under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, called The Revelation of Jesus Christ. And there are 22 chapters in the book of Revelation, and let's just go through them. It begins, of course, by introducing Christ. Uh, 
um, it is, as I said, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And, and, uh, and then we see John, the author, giving his greetings to seven churches uh, there in, in Asia. And then we see in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus Christ giving information, giving letters, if you will, to each of these uh, seven uh, churches. So, you know, we see him, these are literal, seven literal historical uh, churches. Uh, and, you know, he's writing them uh, to places like the church in Ephesus, the church in uh, Smyrna and Pergamos and Thyatira, the church in Sardis, the church in Philadelphia, and the church in Laodicea. And those seven churches, by the way, uh, are, are, it's not necessary to take them as somehow symbolically or mystically representing seven eras in church history. A lot of Bible commentators have suggested that. And there are some interesting parallels between the commendation that Jesus gives each of these literal historic churches from the first century and, and a kind of a panoramic view of church history. But I don't think that's what was intended there. And of course, the text doesn't say that, so it would be speculative at best anyway. And I believe the proper rules of Bible study methods uh, constrain us from uh, sort of allegorizing those seven churches and making them into different representative time periods within church history. Uh, so after Jesus writes these letters, uh, sends these letters to the seven churches, we get into uh, Revelation chapter uh, 4 and 5, chapters 4 and 5. So again, chapter 1 uh, is the introduction to Jesus Christ about whom this, uh, you know, the, the, that, is, that serves as the subject matter for this whole book. That's chapter 1. Chapters 2 and 3 are the letters to the churches in that region. And chapters 4 and 5 uh, constitute what we might call a theodicy. It's a, a justification uh, for the wrath of God that is about to be poured out on the earth at the end of the age. And that's why I said earlier that the book of Revelation really satisfies our longing for justice because all of the inequities of life are kind of made right when God does battle with Satan in the final cosmic struggle leading up to the battle of Armageddon. And Satan, of course, is uh, defeated. Uh, now, he'll be defeated one final time, as we'll talk about uh, once and for all when he's cast into the lake of fire. Uh, we read about that in Revelation chapter 20. But chapters 4 and 5 sort of answer the question, what gives God the right to pour out his wrath? And remember, you, you see them singing, uh, who is worthy to open the seals of God's wrath? And, and finally, they discover it's the Lamb, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who is worthy because he was slain. And so chapters 4 and 5 sort of are a preface, if you will, to uh, the bulk of the book, which is chapters 6 to 18, in which we see God's outpouring of wrath. We see the rise of the Antichrist. We see all of the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies about the tribulation period, uh, all you know, blow by blow taking place over the next uh, you know, chapters 6 to 18. Then, of course, uh, we'll get to the rest of it after that. But let's go through chapters 6 to 18. So once again, chapter 1 is Christ. Chapters 2 and 3, his letters to the churches, the literal historic churches in the first century. Chapters 4 and 5, a justification for what's about to happen because Jesus Christ was slain. And then we get to chapter 6 and the tribulation officially begins. It's the seal uh, judgments. There are three different sets of judgments in the book of Revelation that God pours out during this final seven-year uh, period. 
and they are represented by seven uh, scrolls that have seals on them, then by the, the sound of seven trumpets that are sounded, announcing judgments, and finally represented at the very end of the tribulation by seven uh, bowls, and those bowls, of course, are filled, overflowing with the very wrath of God. So when you get to chapter 6, you, you read this. I'm, I'm not going to read much as we go through it because I'm trying to give you a high-level overview, but I want to introduce the judgments of God by reading the first two verses of chapter 6. Now, I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals. Remember, this is coming right out of chapters 4 and 5 when the Lamb of God was worthy to open the seals. Now, I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a loud with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. So the first seal judgment is the introduction of the Antichrist, the rider on the white horse. In fact, the first four seal judgments that we read about in Revelation chapter 6 are often called the four horsemen of the apocalypse or the force the four horsemen of the book of revelation and those four horsemen have certainly got a lot of attention and, and you know, it's kind of the stuff hollywood is made of but really they're nothing more as significant as they are than just four of the six judgments that are announced by these seals the seventh seal being the introduction of seven more judgments so uh, they're significant indeed because they start the, the, they begin the wrath of God. By the end of chapter 6, the people are, are crying out on earth, you know, uh, the great day of his wrath has come. Who is able to stand? Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne. Hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. So, but back to these four horsemen. The first horseman, the rider on the white horse, is definitely the Antichrist because he's given a bow. He's gone out to conquer and, uh, and, and by the time you get to the end of Revelation in chapter 19, you see another rider on a white horse. And this time, he's the real deal. He's called Faithful and True. It's Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, coming back to establish the long-awaited kingdom. So the, this, this section of Revelation, chapters 6 to 18 or 19, really sort of is bookended by the false Christ, the Antichrist introduction, and he will take center stage for the next seven years. And then, of course, by the ultimate, uh, not the imposter, but the ultimate King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ himself, the eternal Son of God. So that's the white horse. And then we see a fiery red horse who, you know, the rider was granted uh, the authority to take peace from the earth. And then the, the uh, third seal is open and you see a black horse. And, uh, you know, he's uh, going out and uh, having taking charge of of the uh, the measurements and and buying and selling and you know you see incredible famine as a result of the black horse um, and then you see the fourth horse which is the pale horse and he is uh, the, the the death horse if you will he's given power to kill uh, a fourth uh, of the earth. So you've got the the white horse, the red horse, the black horse, and the pale horse. Those are the first four seal uh, judgments. But chapter six uh, is uh, parallels perfectly what Jesus talks about in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. And of course, what Jesus says in Matthew 24 correlates back to what Daniel said in Daniel chapter nine. And it's, it's referring to that final seven-year period. In fact, Jesus quotes Daniel by name. So the, the tribulation begins in, in earnest in Revelation chapter 6 with the seal judgments. Uh, 
and uh, and then you see after Revelation chapter six, you come to some supplemental information that, that God gives John in this book. John, of course, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and in chapter seven is when God introduces the hundred and forty-four thousand Jewish witnesses that will be going throughout the earth during this seven-year period, sharing the gospel and trying to see people come to faith. Now, chapter seven is is what uh, we might call, in a literary sense, an interlude, or I call it supplemental information, because it doesn't necessarily fall chronologically. Uh, up to now, everything's kind of been chronological. We introduce Christ in chapter one. He writes letters to the churches in chapters two and three. Then we have a justification for what's about to happen. Then the wrath of God begins in chapter six. And then it's as if there's a parenthesis or a a pause, and, and God reveals some other things that are happening, namely that there are 144,000 Jewish witnesses, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel who are set aside uh, for the purpose of sharing the gospel during this time. Then he picks back up chronologically in uh, Revelation chapters 8 and 9 with the trumpet judgments. The trumpet judgments. Now, I believe the trumpet judgments begin in the second half of the tribulation, and that's why after he explains these next series of judgments, remember the there are seven seals that are opened. The first six are judgments that God pours out. The seventh is the announcement of seven more judgments, which are trumpets. So then the six trumpets are sounded. Each one has a judgment on earth. Uh, and then the, the seventh trumpet sounds, and it introduces seven more judgments, which are called the bowl judgments. But back to the trumpet judgments in Revelation chapters 8 and 9, uh, we see that the, I believe these take place in the, that the second half of the tribulation. So the sealed judgments bring us all the way up to the midpoint, uh, which we know at the midpoint of the tribulation, that's when the Antichrist uh, sets himself up as God in the temple, demands that everyone worship him, according to Second Thess 2, and Daniel talks about this called the abomination of desolation. Jesus mentions it too in Matthew 24. Um, and then I believe the trumpet judgments then begin uh, to sound. Uh, so that's in chapters 8 and 9. But what's interesting is in chapters 10 through 14, so those five, the next five chapters, all contain additional supplemental information. And I believe it relates to things that are happening right around the midpoint of the tribulation. Things are going to get worse and worse during the tribulation, culminating in utter devastation at the Battle of Armageddon. Uh, and, of course, the, the capture of uh, Satan, who's cast into prison, the uh, capture of the Antichrist and the false prophet, who are uh, cast into the everlasting fire at that point. So uh, let's look at some of that supplemental information. So we've gotten through chapter 9. Remember, chapter 6 is the seal judgments. Chapter 7 is the introduction of the 144,000 whose ministry spans the entire seven years. Then you have chapters 8 and 9 of the trumpet judgments. And then you have an interesting little interlude in chapter 10 where John, the writer here under the inspiration of the Spirit, is told to eat a little scroll. And uh, essentially that little scroll contained additional revelation about the tribulation period, this lead up to Christ's return. But it was something that was at first... Uh, tasted good to John 
because it was, after all, the revelation of God, additional information. It's always good when you hear from the Lord. But in the end, it made his stomach bitter because it was too horrifying to really uh, describe. So the fact of the matter is, as we read the book of Revelation and, and learn about things that are going to happen during that seven-year tribulation period just prior to Christ's return, there are some things we, we don't know exactly what they're going to be because John could not tell us. So that's chapter 10. Uh, chapter 11 introduces the two witnesses. If you recall, at the midpoint of the tribulation, God raises up two witnesses, most likely Moses and Elijah. I think that's the best evidence. I know good scholars, some of them disagree with that, but I believe Matthew 17 prefigures the kingdom uh, as Jesus was transfigured on the mountain. And I think that's a foreshadowing or a foretaste of, of the kingdom. And so I just think since Moses and Elijah were identified there, that's probably who these two witnesses are. Um, but we can't say for certain because they're actually unnamed. But whoever they are, they die, and all the world sees their bodies lying in the street for three and a half days, and then they're resurrected, which is an incredible uh, sign uh, you know, of God's power in the face of Satan's uh, tyrannical rule through the Antichrist at this time. Then chapter 12 uh, is a very interesting chapter. It's where we learn, it sort of looks back. Again, this is all supplemental to the flow of thought during that seven-year period, information that God thought we should have. And in Revelation 12, we get a glimpse all the way back at the beginning when Satan was fell from, from heaven and took one-third of the angels with him that became demons. And we also see a reference to the birth of Christ in Revelation chapter 12. And then we come back to the present moment and we learn in Revelation chapter 12 that uh, at the midpoint of the tribulation, Satan is going to be banished from heaven once and for all. You know, right now, Satan can come and go from heaven to earth. He can converse with God. Remember the story of Job? But, you know, Satan walked right into God's office, metaphorically speaking, and had a conversation with him. And, and so he can today. He's the accuser, constantly accusing us before God in heaven. But at the midpoint of the tribulation in the future, he's going to be banished to the earth. And he'll be confined to this earth for the final three and a half years before he's uh, defeated at the Battle of Armageddon. And then uh, we just see an incredible intensification in Revelation chapter 12 of the persecution against God's chosen nation, Israel. And, uh, and then in chapter 13, we learn a lot about the beast and the false prophet. Now, the beast is the name of the Antichrist in the book of Revelation. He's referred to elsewhere as the Antichrist, the man of sin, the son of perdition, so forth and so on. But in the book of Revelation, he's called the beast. And the false prophet is the second in command, kind of his sidekick, and they work in tandem, ruling over the one world political, religious, and economic system uh, under, under the tyranny of Satan during that final seven-year period. So Revelation 13 is where we learn a lot about the beast and the false prophet. And in my book, Spirit of the Antichrist, where I came up with a list of biblical characteristics of the Antichrist, a lot of those came from Revelation 13. Uh, and, uh, and then in Revelation 14, we see a what I call a prelude to the final harvest, because the bold judgments that are about to be unveiled all take place at the very end of the seven-year tribulation, probably the last week, two to three days, or maybe a week at the most. And so chapter 14 is kind of getting us ready for that. And what we see is a, a, a reference to the coming harvest, uh, where Christ, uh, the, the judge, will come back with a, a sword proceeding out of his mouth to tread the winepress of the wrath of Almighty God. Uh, and, and so uh, Revelation 14 talks about also uh, an angel that will 
you know, to have the, the, the distinct privilege of sharing the gospel with every last person on earth who has not already heard it because of the witness of the 144,000. So the 144,000 are going to be spreading the gospel globally, but as we get near the end of the seven years and near the end of the return of Christ at that time, there will still be people that haven't heard, and so God sends an angel who can move more swiftly and uh, cross uh, through time and space more easily than physical human beings can, and he makes sure that everyone has heard the everlasting uh, gospel. And then you get to chapters 15 and 16, which are the bold judgments. And these judgments, the seals, trumpet, and bowls, have gotten in, you know, increasingly more intense and more devastating. And the bold judgments of Revelation 15 and 16 uh, constitute the, the preparation for the campaign of Armageddon that will occur uh, in Revelation uh, chapter 19 at the coming of Christ. And then chapter 17 and 18 after the bold judgment in chapters 15 and 16, you have one more little interlude, one more piece of supplemental information, which has also gotten a lot of attention. It's hard to say which, which gets more attention from Revelation, the four horsemen of the sealed judgment in chapter 6 or Mystery Babylon in Revelation 17 and 18. And that's what chapter 17 and 18 are all about, about the future Babylon, which will be the capital city of the Antichrist regime, and it will fall mightily. Mystery Babylon, by the way, simply means new information about Babylon. We know from the Old Testament that Babylon is a key player in God's plan of the ages, and it will be revived as part of the revived Roman Empire. Um, but Babylon will be one of the key geographic cities during this final seven-year period. I believe it will be literal Babylon, literally rebuilt. And I believe the Antichrist who will be reigning over a global government, will have headquarters both in Rome for religious headquarters, um, literal Babylon for his political uh, and geographic headquarters, and then also there will be an economic headquarters, I believe. Uh, it remains to be seen what that will be. And by the way, I want to interject here, because I'm not sure if I said this at the outset, but, but if you're listening to this program and you're not, uh, you know, have not really studied end times prophecy, and maybe this is sort of new to you, or perhaps even the first time that you're hearing it, you need to understand that believers in the present church age are promised that we will be rescued before the great and terrible day of the Lord's wrath. The Bible makes it abundantly clear in 1 Thessalonians 1.10 and 1 Thessalonians 5.9. We are not part of this final seven-year period, uh, which is the culmination of a 490-year plan that God gave to Israel. So we will be rescued before this seven-year period. So all that we're talking about here is just important revelation leading up to the return of Christ to establish his earthly kingdom. But you need not fear, because if you know the Lord Jesus today by faith, you won't be here during this seven-year period. Sometimes people say, well, then what's, what, why is it relevant? Well, it's relevant because, as I said at the outset, it tells us the end of the story. I mean, who would want to read a book and stop before you get to the last couple of chapters? Of course you wouldn't. You want to know how it ends, and we want to know how it ends. Plus, we will be coming back in Revelation 19 triumphantly with Christ, writing with him to help rule and reign in the coming earthly kingdom. So while we won't be on the earth while all this is going on, it is still very much a part of God's plan, and we will be uh, a part of it in different uh, ways. So uh, back to Revelation. We left off there with chapters 17 and 18 and Mystery Babylon. This is new mystery, meaning something previously unrevealed. So God is giving us here through John new information about Babylon. 
and it's a very vivid description of the fall of Babylon. A lot of people have tried to speculate that Babylon might be the United States. Um, I think that's certainly possible from a financial headquarters perspective, but uh, I, I definitely believe there will be a literal geographic Babylon uh, rebuilt during the end times reign of the Antichrist. And then we get to the climax of the book of Revelation, and that is chapter 19, the victorious coming of Jesus Christ to the earth. He defeats the Antichrist uh, and the false prophet at the Battle of Armageddon, and he inaugurates the long-awaited messianic earthly kingdom. In Revelation chapter 19, it's, it's worth reading, because it's a, it's a passage that I think fills us with awe and hope at the same time. And it's a passage that I think every believer ought to read routinely, at least once a month, just to be reminded of what's coming, especially in days like this when things are uh, so evil all around us. But we read in Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 11, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. So here's that bookend I was talking about. We saw a white horse at the beginning of the tribulation. But he was an imposter. Now we see the real deal, uh, Jesus Christ. So again, beginning in verse 11, Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war, unlike the Antichrist who was conquering in unrighteousness. We read on, His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. That's the church, the bride of Christ, coming back with him to rule and reign in the kingdom. Now listen, verse 15, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. What a, what a day that will be at the return of Christ. But you know what? The book of Revelation doesn't stop there. We see three more chapters, and it's all good news. In chapter 20, we learn of the judgment of the beast and the false prophet. And we, we learn that Satan is put into prison for a thousand years and Christ takes the throne and rules for 1,000 years, as Revelation 20 plainly states, on the present earth. And it's a, it's a glorious reign in perfect righteousness and peace and justice with a rod of iron, as we read about. And then at the end of the thousand years, we see one final battle that takes place in time and space and matter before the eternal state. Satan is released at the end of chapter 20 for one final battle. Uh, he is defeated, and that time, this time he is cast into the everlasting lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet have been for the past thousand years at that point. And he shall be no more. It's, it's done. I mean, he'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. I don't mean he ceases to exist, but he shall be no more a factor in our lives and in the lives of the earth. And then at the end of the millennium, not only does Satan get cast into the lake of fire where he's tormented day and night forever and ever like the Antichrist and the false prophet, but God destroys the entire earth, as Peter tells us in Second Peter 3, because the earth is under the curse of sin. God doesn't just renovate this earth. He doesn't just put a Band-Aid on it or fix it up. 
There's no fixer-upper when it comes to the curse of sin. It requires a rebirth. Just like phys- uh, spiritually in our own lives, we have to have a rebirth if we want to uh, enter the kingdom someday. We can't just you know, patch ourselves up and do better and try harder. We've got to have a complete new birth. That's what Jesus told Nicodemus, and that can only happen by faith. Well, similarly, the entire earth is under the curse of sin and has to be destroyed, and God recreates it, according to Revelation 21 and 22, in perfect sinless perfection. And then we shall be with the Lord forever and ever in the eternal state, glorifying Him, praising Him, fellowshipping with other believers. And in that way, the Bible ends and has come full circle from the pre-fall perfection of Eden to, you know, once again, a sinless recreated state. And, you know, in Revelation chapter 22, the last book of the Bible, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to give to everyone according to his work. He's talking there about rewards that he will give us at the Bema Judgment. We don't earn heaven uh, as a reward. We get heaven as a free gift paid for by the blood of Christ and received solely by faith. But he says, Behold, I am coming quickly. And in verse 17, He says, not Jesus, but the Spirit says, Come, and let him who hears say, Come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. I love how the Bible ends with that incredible invitation that has been echoed forth throughout human history, that whosoever will may come and be saved. And then in the final two verses of the Bible. I wonder when the la- when's the last time you read the final two verses of the Bible, the final two verses of Revelation, chapter 22, verses 20 and 21. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so come Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. So that's Revelation in a nutshell. We went through it pretty quickly, but I hope you can see how it's actually pretty straightforward. It's fascinating, it's clear, and it gives us hope to know who wins in the end. And if you're listening to this podcast today and you don't know the Lord Jesus, I implore you to place your faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died and rose again for your sins. He's the only hope. He's the only one who can give the free gift of eternal life. And the only way to receive that gift is by trusting in Him and Him alone as your Savior. And then for those of you who know the Lord, I hope this uh, high-level, fast-paced overview of the book of Revelation has given you some food for thought, encouraged you, reminded you that we know who wins in the end. And uh, we've got a lot of a lot of things going on in our world today, setting the stage for the return of Christ. In fact, uh, next week, I think I'm going to do just an overview of some of the signs today that are happening, some of the things that are happening today that could easily play right into uh, the Antichrist regime during the seven-year tribulation. If I don't do it next week, I'm going to do it in the, one of the upcoming podcasts for sure. It's been on my mind a lot lately. But I hope if you haven't gotten my book, Spirit of the Antichrist, uh, you'll pick that up. Just go to spiritoftheantichrist.org. That's spiritoftheantichrist.org. You can read the preface to the book and the table of contents, and uh, you can see how I address a number of uh, things happening today that are part of the great deception and setting the stage for what's to come. But as we read those things and as we read the headlines and as we hear the news, let us never forget the words of Christ who said, I am coming quickly. Quickly there, by the way, doesn't mean like soon, 
Uh, we certainly believe he is coming soon based on the signs of the times. But this was written, of course, in 95 AD, some 2,000 years ago. Quickly just means suddenly. That when it happens, it will happen very, very quickly. Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 15 as happening in the blink of an eye, the twinkling of an eye. So I hope you're ready. If you don't know the Lord, trust him today. If you do know the Lord, be ready. Look up and be watchful. Thanks for listening today. Hope you'll join me again next time. And God bless.